Welcome to Roman's Road, the podcast of me, Eddie Roman. This is where we talk about evangelism and apologetics and all kinds of Christian stuff. I really do love my job. I work for Living Waters with Ray Comfort. I produce the Way of the Master TV show, and I work with guys like Mark Spence and Emil Zwayne, and we just do a lot of stuff to encourage believers to share their faith. And we've been working on a project recently that is putting us into contact with a lot of different evangelists and apologists and Christian pastors and teachers. And one man I got to spend the day with all day yesterday doing a lot of recording is relatively new to me. I found him on YouTube a while ago, and I've seen some of his videos, and he is a really amazing open-air preacher, but he's more than that. He's also an extremely educated man, both on the Bible and on the subject he's going to be talking about today. So when this guy open-air preach, it's like taking a college professor and sticking him up on the box. And so it's just amazing to watch some of the videos he's in. You're going to be able to go and look at him on YouTube. There'll be links coming up shortly in this interview where you can see him in action, open-air preaching. I was really inspired working with this guy all day. So I thought, you know what? I wonder if he'd be up to doing a podcast episode. And thankfully, he was. So this is an interview I did with Jay Smith. Now, Jay was staying at a friend's house down in Huntington Beach. And instead of dragging him back into the studio, I decided just to take him out on the beach. And we hung out and talked. And I had my recorder. And so in this interview, you're going to hear some background noise. You're going to hear a little bit of a beach noise, some wind. Hopefully, it won't be too bad. So you can just think of this interview as a relaxing day at the beach with Jay Smith. I am here today with Jay Smith. So if you are an American and you're into apologetics, you might not necessarily know that name too well simply because Jay spent about 25 years in England. Is that correct? London. Okay, London. And tell us what you kind of got known for over there on a Speaker's Corner. Okay, well that's that's um, like two questions and that's to go ahead and, and hit both of them. Okay. I, I'm a, I am an apologist, but I'm better known as an apolemicist. Polemicist. Which means I go on the offense. Okay. Apologist is a defense. Apologetic would be what we have. We have schools of apologetic. We have courses of apologetic. It's very common to treat and train up how to defend against the, normally the attacks uh, coming from the atheists and the humanists. What we don't have, unfortunately, in our schools is Islamic apologetics or apologetics to Islam. Uh, that is how to deal with the attacks coming against Islam. And this is basically how I discovered you. I was on YouTube looking around at videos on, on Islam, and I see this guy who is standing on a ladder in the middle of this huge crowd of all these Muslims, a very lively crowd. Some would look at that and think, oh my goodness, this guy is insane. But after you listen to it for a while, you just come to discover Jay is extremely knowledgeable, not only on Christianity and preaching the gospel, but on Islam, which was, it, it seemed to me like in these videos, you seem to know more about the Quran and about Islam as a, than, than did a lot of the Muslims you were speaking to. Yeah, if, if you look at apologetic, in fact, think this way. Remember Vince Lombardi, the, uh, the uh, coach, yeah, football coach? Uh -huh. He used to always say, the best defense is a good offense. Right. And that's what I'm doing in uh, Islamic work. I have found that you can sit there and spend your whole time defending, 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 and all the people that are listening think that we have all the problems. Mm. That's one of the 
pitfalls that That's we have true. in a lot of our work with Islam. Yeah. And I would say also probably with uh, other faiths. Interestingly though, have you noticed that when they're teaching you apologetics, when it comes to humanists or uh, even atheists, right. they rarely sit there and tell you how to defend. They really tell you how to go on the offense, how yeah. to confront the atheists, how to confront the humanists, how to confront the Jehovah's Witnesses, how to confront the Mormons. Right. We don't have any problem using confrontation with those groups of people mm -hmm. here in America. And in fact, many of your courses, that's exactly what they train you to do, to go on the offense. Right. There are certainly those, because not too many of the uh, atheists and the humanists are confronting Christianity. The, the, the Jehovah Witnesses and possibly the Mormons do because they come to your door and they have a lot of questions. They're more active in They're in more active in the evangelism. Trying to get you. Yeah. But when it comes to Islam, almost any Muslim I know, as soon as I tell them no, I'm a Christian or that I believe that Jesus is Lord or I believe the Bible is the Word of God, I know that I'm going to get into a whole litany of questions hmm. that they're going to throw at me concerning the Trinity, concerning the, the divinity of Jesus Christ, concerning the authority of Scripture. And we don't have any school that trains us on how to answer those questions. There's no school in America that trains you on how to answer those specific questions because I don't, because I assume because there's just not many Muslims around here. And you, uh, you've mentioned well, that as well. Yeah, you actually, actually, you know, this is interesting. I've been evangelizing and open air preaching for, for you know, consistently for at least 10 years. And I run into atheists, I run into Catholics, I run, I run into a whole lot of kinds of people. I rarely ever run into Muslims where, where I'm around. I might see one once in a while at, when I'm shopping or going through my life, maybe once a month or something like that. So, so I'm not in an area where there, there's just many Muslims around. And, and that would be symptomatic of much of the United States. Mm. And I would even say the Muslims that you do meet, you don't want to really talk about theology much with them anyhow because they tend to be more nominal. Right. Am I correct? Yeah. The vast majority of Muslims, now that I've moved back here to the United States the last two years, I just don't meet any radical Muslims at mm -hmm. all. I'm sure they're here, right. but they, uh, they don't show their heads very much. And that's because the United States is very still very much a Christian country. You won't agree with that, I know. I've never seen an American agree with that, but then come to Europe and look at the difference. Well, no, I, I've actually had the opportunity to travel quite a bit. I've been to a bunch of different countries. I've, I've been in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. I've been to Sudan. So I've been to places where there is a Muslim government in place. And I do understand that compared to so much of the world, this definitely is a Christian nation. Now the Christians here will say, well, we're not, this, these aren't Christians walking around here. They might go to church. You Americans lament about anything. Yeah, and, you, that's right. and you think you've got the worst place in the world. That's right. You need to leave your shores and see what it's like in Europe. Yeah. Come to Britain, come to Africa, come to Asia, come yeah. to any place but America, and you will find that this is very much a Christian nation. It's, I won't call it a Christian nation, but you have a Christian memory here that is pervasive. I can't, I don't know of any place in America where I don't turn on the radio and I don't hear a Christian station. Huh, so I true. don't know of any place I can just drive and see church upon church upon church. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me, your churches are full. Yeah. You have huge churches. The numbers of Christians that you find here is mind-boggling. Right. So because of that, Islam, the Muslims that are here, they know it, they see it, they don't, they don't, they're not gonna raise their head above the parapet. And they look at the kind of government you have, even though you say you, your Democrats are very liberal, they're not liberal compared to European right. politicians. And you have not acquiesced to Islam like we have in Britain. And I say we because I spent 25 years there. Yeah. The last 25 years. Now we're, we're sitting here on Huntington Beach. Um, 
enjoying the view, but the view also includes a helicopter once in a while. So Why not? <laughs> Why he, not? He wants to hear what we're saying, too. That's right. That's right. He's going to find he didn't like the content. He'll just move on. So that's going to go ahead. <laughs> you, you know, Jay, I, like I was saying, I got to travel around the world uh, quite a bit. So I've seen America from different points of view. What countries have you lived in? And, and more specifically, what com countries have you worked in as far as reaching out to Muslims? As far as reaching out to Muslims, very few. Uh, as far as growing up and, and traveling, very many. Okay. I was born and grew up in India. Now, that, that is significant in who I am because of the fact in India, it is the third largest Muslim country on earth, yeah. which probably for many of you here is, that would be a surprise. Yeah, I, I think a lot, a lot of people, they have an idea of Muslims live in Middle Eastern countries um, like Iraq and Iran, and, and that, that's kind of that's kind of it. That's, that's the kind that's of where it. The, that's where the Muslims are. Yeah, you know? and the vast majority of Muslims do not live in the Middle East at all. Right. In fact, there are a very small minority of Muslims even speak Arabic. Yeah. If you look at the entire Arabic-speaking world, both Christians, Muslims, and others, mm -hmm. it only comes up to 15 percent. Uh, wow. Muslim population, it's only 15 percent of all Muslims are Arab-speaking. Right. 85% live outside of the world you've just described. And this is a big misnomer. I, this is a, a big misnomer here in America. Americans have this problem. Well, Americans seem to link the word Muslim and the word Arab together. They're, they're kind of the same thing. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. Because the church has been there long before Islam was there in the Middle East. And they spoke Arabic long before Muslims spoke Arabic. People don't look at places like China and, and places like that and realize there's a whole lot of Muslims. And there. I think the reason is because of your Jewish problem. Hmm. I call it a problem. You probably don't. I think you have such a, your antenna are only geared towards Israel. Okay. You have such an enormous amount of love for Israel. In America, the and, church and loves Israel. Anything that disturbs Israel or anything that confronts Israel confronts you as a Christian. So that you're only, the only grid you have for Islam is those who are confronting Israel. Huh. And that's why I think because of that, you don't realize there's a much bigger world out there. And Islam is much greater. Let me just give you some examples. Yeah. I grew up in India. We have almost 200 million Muslims in India. The entire Arab-speaking world, Islamic world, is only 270 million. But if you were to take not only in India, but Pakistan and Bangladesh on either side and look at the Muslim populations there, you're talking about almost 600 million Muslims. Wow. That's two to three times larger than the entire Arab-speaking world. And take a look and see who are all the main, the ones who are attacking Christianity. Mm -hmm. The Muslims who are attacking Christianity, go up on YouTube and look at the names. Okay. No one has really done this. We have to do it because we know all the names. I know all of them, so many of them, most of them personally. The number one person that's attacking Christianity right now is Zakir Naik. He's from Bombay. Attacking Christianity in, in what way? Verbally. Verbally, okay. Attacking, debating. Okay. Look at Zakir Naik. Now, that probably names yeah. you never heard before. So th this is sad because these are names I've never heard yeah, before. Yeah, and this is prolific all over the internet. Just yeah. put in his Z-A. K-I-R, and then his last name is N-A-I-K, and just look at the hundreds and hundreds of videos up there. Right. He only attacks Christianity. Okay. He, has a, he, he has a following of millions. Mm -hmm. He is concerned, uh, considered to have brought m more Christians to Islam than probably anyone else in our lifetime. Ahmad Didat is also, was, he's dead now, but he was the most prolific. Uh, he lived in Durban, South Africa, but he's from Gujarat, hmm. India. Okay. Shabir Ali, the most famous debater today, lives in Toronto. Where is he from? He's from India. All of these guys, Ach, um, Mansur Ahmad from Bangladesh, Adnan Rashid from Pakistan, all of these great names, the ones that are attacking Christianity, who have followings of millions, are all, and almost almost all of them, are from the Indian subcontinent. Now let me ask you the next question. Now show me one Arab speaker that's attacking Christianity. Give me one name. 
Uh, uh, I can't even pronounce the names you said, much less think of another one. And there are none. Yeah. There is no debater that I know of that's confronting is, uh, Christianity on the YouTube or on the internet or even publicly in person. The only Arabs I know are attacking the United States. So, you're, so you're saying even though, even though Americans believe that Muslims are Arab, realistically when it comes to the issue of Muslims advancing on Christianity in America, there's no Arabs who are Muslims. No who are, who Arabs are, doing are the, attacking Christianity for a wild. very simple reason. Huh. We don't even appear on their radar in the Middle East. Wow. Christianity is such, it's so, it's so um, insignificant yeah. that no Arab I know feels threatened by Christians. When you're in a country where all you see is Muslims, why, why bother? Is and all you country? have ever, ever been told about Christianity is, yeah. they're, look at them, they're third class citizens. Right. And they don't have any, there are no Arabs that I know of. Uh, let me ch check that. There are some Arabs that are attacking Islam. Okay. And probably the biggest name is Father, uh, uh, Father Alexandre Boudros. Yes, this is the guy who's been on TV for years and years and years. And is, is it kind of like a, a Coptic? He's a Coptic priest. Okay. Zakaria Boutros, not yeah. Alexandre. Zakaria Boutros, and he lives, I, I can't tell you where he lives, but right. he does not live in Egypt. Okay. He has to come to the West to do all his work. And so, um, from what I understand, this is a man who has tons and tons of videos out there among the Arab-speaking world, and so Muslims who, who aren't in America, they're in different countries, many of them have come to Christ from listening to this guy um, t teach them about the differences between Christianity and Islam. Oh, he doesn't just do that. Okay. He attacks Islam's head-on. Okay. He does what we do. He does in Arabic what I do in English. Now, this guy, is, is this the same guy who's got like death, death threats on him? And, and that's why you know, I'm not permitted to tell you where he lives. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Makes sense. I'll tell you All where right. he lives after we stop this broadcast. No, don't, don't. I don't want anyone to think that I know where he but lives. But I'll tell you about where he lives because you'll <laughs> okay. be surprised when you find out. Okay. What's fascinating to me is outside of him and maybe two or three others, there are hardly any Arab speakers who are actually taking on Islam. There is Christian Prince, mm -hmm. but that's not even his name. And okay. you don't even know where he lives either. And, no, and he can't and tell no one where he lives. He doesn't even put his face on. No one even knows what he looks like. Yeah. And almost all of those who are attacking from the Arab world are so fearful that they don't even put their names or faces or sure. do anything. Now, the rest of us who are taking on Islam, we are well known and we do put our face in public and right. we do get death threats and we do get beat up. Now, let me ask you this. So, so I'm watching these videos of you. And, and, and by the way, if people want to check out your videos on, on YouTube or anywhere else, wh where can they find them? Fander Films. Fander Films. P F A N D E R F I L M S. So it's a. Is that dot com? Do, no, just Fander Films on, UK, on YouTube. It's a YouTube channel. It's a YouTube channel. Okay. Listen, we do everything YouTube now because no one's going to be reading. People, Muslims don't like to read. What they do is they like to. Uh, Americans watch. don't like to read either. It well, they like do a little bit more better more. because our educational system is based on reading, right. whereas theirs is not. And for we have found with Muslims, if you're going to take, uh, if you're going to evangelize Muslims, you've got to use video. You've so got to use what you're doing right here. Yeah. Audio. So one of the th one of the things that I've I've kind of come to realize is one of the issues I believe that Americans um, American Christians either aren't aware or don't care about reaching out to Muslims. It seems like most of the Americans I talk to when the su subject of Islam comes up, there's just a fear there. They're afraid. They see Muslims as the terrorists, the guys who flew the plane the planes into the buildings and. You know, more and more often we're seeing these attacks come up. Someone's driving a, a truck down a crowded street and, and oh, what, what a coincidence, it's, it's a Muslim. And that, that seems to be happening more and more. So what I've seen among Christians is just kind of a, a fear 
um, and a belief that even though this Muslim neighbor of mine seems nice, even though they seem very educated, um, there's this kind of belief that I know that right under that turban, they got a knife and they're waiting to kill me and they're just waiting for I'll the be word. careful, it's not a turban. They don't wear turbans. I'm sorry, see, that, Those are Sikhs. that shows you how uneducated Americans are, including myself, when it comes to this, this. And many Sikhs have been very upset that they have been targeted as Muslims. If, if you're a Sikh and you're listening to this, I seek forgiveness right now. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I will That's never right. do that again. That's all right. That's why Jay's here to educate us, us all. But in America, there, there is this, in the American church, there is this kind of, you know, belief that Muslims are the enemy and, you know, forget about evangelizing them. We just need to be careful with them and stay away from them and, and that kind of thing. Okay. So, and I think that's our own problem. Hmm. And I, let me just ask you right now, Eddie, can you tell me one name of one Christian that's been killed by a Muslim in your lifetime here in America? I cannot. Okay. So why is this, where is this fear coming from? Uh, it's I, based on nothing. Yeah. And a lot of it is our own, pro, our own fault. And one of the problems is I've noticed this having been here now, I've only been here two years, so I'm not an expert on the church here in the United States, but what I have noticed in everywhere I go, on all the conferences that I'm asked to speak at and all the different churches I'm asked to speak in, where I hear, I hear the same uh, narrative, and that is what you're just telling me. Muslims are gonna kill you. We don't know who they are because yeah. it could be anybody. It could be your next door neighbor. I've heard Christian apologists saying things like this. Where I, I, in I've, the world is this coming from? Because how is, there, how is it that they support this historically and where is there any examples of this what i have noticed and what's fascinating to me is when you talk when you find when you find muslims if you find them who are and look go and find them they're in your neighborhood they're probably in your school they're probably night next door they may be their greengrocer down the street when you find when you go and meet them see if they're not very much just like you and me yeah well the, the ones i have met and talked to that's what it comes down to they have families they have the same desires for their they lives they do not want any violence whatsoever. One of the reasons they're here is because they're getting away from that. Right. They, 99% of all Muslims that you're going to meet here in the United States are fed up for, with what they have come from. Mm. They, are, they have seen what's happened to their countries. Look at this whole new immigrants uh, push that's coming in from Syria and Iraq and, and from Yemen and also coming in from Eritrea and all these uh, other places. All these, these refugees that are coming here, you talk to them, go and talk to them. We have a whole slew of them in Pennsylvania because they seem to bring an awful lot of them right there to the Harrisburg Airport and then we get them uh, deciphered to us. And I'm talking to them all the time and they are absolutely open to the gospel. They, they are set up. They, are, they hate Islam because what Islam has done to Syria, what it's doing to uh, Iraq, what it's doing to Liberia and all the, I'm sorry, Libya, all these countries which are in the news, they see that this is, uh, they put it and they put the blame at the foot of Islam itself and uh, of, of the radicals, the very ones that we should be fearful of. Yeah. And that's why they're here and that's one reason why they've left. That's why a million of them walked right across Europe to get to Germany right. in 2014. You don't walk across that much distance if you're just because you just want to get to go for a holiday. That's you right. are fleeing for your lives and more than that, you're fleeing from something that you has destroyed those lives. Because hmm. many of those were doctors and lawyers and surgeons and, and greengrocers and all the rest. They all had skills and they're bringing their skills with them because those skills can no, can no longer be used yeah. in places like Damascus, Aleppo, and all whatnot. Now, let's get back to this idea of fear. That is a pervasive problem here in America. It's also a big problem in Europe. Europe has a little bit more reason to be fearful because we do have a lot of radical Muslims, especially Britain. Right. Britain is a magnet for radical Muslims because we're the most lenient of all Western countries. We're the only country in the world, in Britain, that has not only opened our doors to all Muslims, especially radicals, but we house them, we feed them, we let them go to school. Let me give you an example. Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad, 
a good friend of mine, don't let that disturb you, uh, <laughs> he tried to overthrow the government in Syria. Uh, he is a very radical Muslim. He fled from Syria, came to London, opened open doors. They gave him my house. He lives in he lived in Tottenham. He was became the known as the Ayatollah of Tottenham. He is the one that started the Al Mahajudin party, which is the most radical group in Britain. I got to know him in 1993. So you can see we're talking quite a few years ago. Yeah. We became best friends. I, I went to his class. He actually had me teach at his class in Tottenham. This is how he introduced himself. He induced me to his students. So you're about to teach his class and this is how he... He introduced me okay. as a kind of teacher's class because he wanted to hear from a good Christian uh, why is it that we don't like Islam or what are the problems we have with the Quran or what is it with the difficulties okay. we're having? Those kind of questions, yeah. which are the kind of questions I want to answer anyways. Right. And it's fascinating that he would allow me, a radical Muslim, to go and teach these kind of subjects, these kind of answer these kind of questions. This right. is how he introduced me. This is my favorite Christian he tastes in the class. But this will be the first man I kill when Islam comes to Britain. What an introduction. Wow. And I didn't even blink an eye when I heard it because that's exactly what he would, I expected him to say. Because, see, a radical Muslim would have to say that if he's following his Quran. Okay, so... so now, now, before you get on, I know you wanted to go on to a segue, but before we get on that okay. segue, I want to still deal with this idea of fear. Because if, you're, if that is you're the case... You're a good open-air preacher. You know how to shut people down, right? I will do that because I, yeah, I know you, where you want <laughs> to go. Keep going, keep going. But we need to deal with this problem of fear. And okay. that is the difficulty that I'm seeing. It's unique. It's much more pervasive here in America than even we have in Europe. And yet, in, especially like Britain, they should be more fearful because they're surrounded by radicals who are very visible. Come down to Speaker's Corner on any given Sunday and you'll see they surround your ladder. Yeah. Now, what is fascinating to me, even in Britain, I can't find anybody that's been killed by them. We get death threats all the time. I don't think, well, I shouldn't say every Sunday we get death threats, but I, every other Sunday there is someone in the crowd who has said, we're going to kill you, mm -hmm. we're going to follow you home. Who cares? I don't even worry about it. I've never had a bodyguard. I have been beaten up. I've had my glasses broken. You can see here the scar where they try to open up my throat. Oh, yeah. But I've never been, well, I wouldn't be here if I'd been killed, did would that, I? Did the scar, did that happen right at Speaker's Corner? It happened corner? just offside of Speaker's Corner when they attacked me as I was leaving. Wow. But this is the kind of thing that, that, that I would expect to have if I am a radical Christian who's confronting Islam. That's very true. I am the one that will get beat up. I am the one that will get killed. That's actually that's a promise from Jesus Hatu Christ Tosh, himself. who is now taken over my job, she has been beaten up she has they've tried to string her up she had her foot broken she's had three ribs broken she has to have a police escort every time she gets off the train to go to her home because they now know where she lives now she and she's an apostate she used to be a Muslim she will get killed but she is a polemicist I am a polemicist we will get killed none of you will get killed if all you're doing is preaching the gospel hmm. and that's what I want to uh, emphasize for those of you who are listening to us don't do what we do you're not called to do so, and you don't have the gifts to do so, and you don't have the background or the schooling to do so. Please do not do polemics unless you know what you're talking about. Um, yesterday I was all day w with you uh, on a project we're working on for Living Waters, and I was extremely impressed with just uh, the amount of information that is stuffed into that brain of yours. It seemed like any question we had having to do with Islam or the Quran, you, you not only had the answer, you had you know, three to five verses from the Quran to support your answer. You had verses from the Bible to support your answer. And then you had, you had this whole historical context for, it's, it seemed like um, every answer. How long have you been studying this stuff? Like, well, listen, where did remember, all that come from? This is almost 40 years, so okay. don't, don't, don't compare me with anybody else. Okay. But what I will say, and this is what is important to continue with that whole idea, yeah. 
it, for, when you're working with Muslims, remember, remember, remember your job, and everybody listening, your job is to defend the faith. Hmm. Your job is to defend Jesus Christ. Right. Your job is to defend the Bible. Please remember that. Let me say that again. Please only do that. Yeah. What that means is you're just going to be a, you're, you're going to be an apologist. I'm going to do what I normally do. What you, what you should do. Don't just give your testimony. Please don't do that. Muslims are fed up with testimonies. Yeah. They'll have a better testimony than you have, in fact. <laughs> they will outdo you in testimonies. Right. What you need to do is really keep to those two themes. Jesus Christ in the Bible, Jesus Christ in the Bible. In fact, if you want to even just say, one, if, and I've said this all the time, and I encourage my students to do this, when you go up to a Muslim, you meet them, and you, get, and you say, listen, can we have a talk? And then just say two things to them. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Do you have an opinion? That will get it going. Hmm. And that means that you're going to talk about those two subjects, which are the two subjects you want to talk about anyways. Am I correct? Yeah. Now, definitely. once you have done that, you have placed your flag there saying, I am a Bible-believing Christian who believes in Jesus Christ as God. Those are confrontational words. Right. They are highly confrontational to any Muslim, and they will want to talk about those two areas. Don't talk about Israel. Don't talk about Iraq. Don't talk about politics. Mm. Forget about them. You're not there to defend uh, Donald Trump. You're not there to defend America. You're not there to defend Israel. You're there to defend Jesus Christ. Right. Now, if you can remember just to do that, then you're doing all that call God calls you. Now, some of you who are listening may say, hold on a minute, Jay, you just got done about 50 minutes ago saying that the best defense is a good offense. Mm -hmm. And I agree. There are some times when we, uh, some of us, have to be like Paul. Remember, Paul was an amazing polemicist. Yeah. And that's why he went into Laodicea, Cappadocia, Berea, there in Ephesus. If you look at chapter 17 to 19 of Acts, just look and see all the cities he went into. And the first thing he did was go right to the synagogue right. and he confronted the Jews with what they had done to the Messiah. He that is polemics. And he was also a Pharisee. He was he a Pharisee, was he could do that because that educated. means he was highly educated, but he could right. do that because he knew his opponent. Yeah. So that's what, that, that backs up what I'm trying to say. Do not attack Islam unless you know what you're attacking, yeah. especially Islam, because Islam will kill you for what you say. And if you guys listen to this, if you want an example of what Jay's talking about, please go to that YouTube channel and, and just, just watch. Fander Films. Fander Films. Fander you know, Films is named after Dr. Carp Fander. That's just, why it has a PF at the beginning. Okay, okay. So I, I got to question you. I, I want to touch on this before we leave this subject. Um, just the whole idea of, you know, Americans being afraid of, of Islam. It seems to me that whenever there's a terrorist attack, um, whether it's in this country or a big one somewhere in the world, and then you see the American newscasters come on, the very first thing they do, and it might not just be the person on CNN, it might be um, a president or a politician, the first thing it seems like they are, their very first message is trying to explain to you why this is some weird offshoot of Islam, this is just some nutcase who is in his basement, this isn't Islam because Islam is a peaceful religion. And I got I to gotta admit, when I was over working in Sudan and I was ministering to the refugees who were in the midst of this holy war years ago, um, I, I knew that the reason these people were dying and suffering is because their own government, their Islamic government, was bombing them and, and setting their huts on fire and doing all this stuff. And so in that context, Whenever I, I, it's just confusing because I have met Muslims in America who are very kind and it seems like the last thing on their mind would, would be to do anything bad to me. Now you, you said part of the I've reason. I've already answered that question. Well, you, yeah, part of the reason is because they're trying to get away from the bad stuff. But at the same time, there is an aspect of wherever I am in the world, whoever I talk to, I'm going to get a opinion. Um, Islam is a peaceful religion or 
Islam okay, let me answer is that all about quickly. the sword. I'll do it in two minutes. Okay. It's very simple. And the reason why it's so simple is because as Christians, we'll understand this more than anybody else. To be a good Muslim, you to be a good radical Muslim, look at the word radical, yeah. it means root. You go. You need to go back to the root. Okay. To be a good Christian, a radical Christian, you need to go back to the root as well. Root number, radical. Yeah. And that's a good word to call them. Or a fundamentalist, you've got to go back to the fundamentals. Right. So what are the fundamentals? What are the roots of Islam? Well, it's one book and one man. It's mm -hmm. called the Quran, and the man is Muhammad, the book of the man, the book of the man. The same thing works for us as Christians. When Martin Luther uh, nailed up his 95 Thesis, what do you think he was saying? Sola Scriptura, only that which is in Scripture is that which we follow, all of which points to one man, Jesus Christ. So therefore, for us as Christians, we know to be a good Christian, and if your pastor is on a Sunday morning, if he doesn't pick up the Bible and read it, you're not going to sit there and listen to him. Because right. you don't care diddly swat about his opinion or his experience. You want to know what the Bible is saying. Yeah. And then you want to see how he applies the Bible to your lives today. In the same token, the more clo the closer you find, the more you find a Muslim who is closer to Scripture, you're the more radical he is going to be. And that's why this violence that you're hearing and seeing is because of the Quran. Because if you go back to the Quran, you're going to see violence. The Quran is the book of violence. Muhammad was a man of violence. If you uh, Listen, I've been saying this for 40 years and I have yet to see a Muslim that can shut me down on this. Yes, Islam is violent. Muslims are not, unless they're radical. In the same token, Christians, when you can see a lot of them here uh, in Huntington Beach, I'm sure you go up to most everyone here, uh, a lot of them you say, uh, can you tell me who, uh, uh, are you a Christian? They'll probably say, yes, I'm a Christian. All right, can you tell me why Jesus had to come to, why God had to come to earth? And they'll just sit there, blah, 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 blah. they don't so, have no idea. That is so true. They're, nomin they're nominal. The vast majority of Christians are nominal. They don't know the Bible. They don't care diddly smart about Jesus Christ. If they're and radical, they, will, they might end up being a missionary. Or however, if they, were, if they were a radical Christian, you ask that too. They will go right back to Scripture. They will quote it, and they will tell you exactly right through, starting with the whole litany of, of verse after verse as to why God had to come to earth. Yeah. Why? Because they go back to their Bible, and they go back to Jesus Christ. In the same token, the more radical you find a Muslim, the more that they, that they have to follow their scripture. And it's the Quran that's full of violence. So I would suggest the vast majority of Muslims you're gonna meet here are, tend to be nominal. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna be violent at all because they, are, they have never read their scriptures. What I find is the more nominal a Muslim is, the more they are like Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're hearing us. They're living in the West. Huh. They're actually picking up our mores. And I find Muslim after Muslim, when I get into discussion, almost immediately they start mimicking what I say. When I say, you know, listen, I talk to God and I pray to God. Oh, we pray to God too. Uh, and I, he answers, my, oh, he answers our prayer too. Nowhere in the Quran can you say that. Yeah. But they don't know any difference. They just mimic what they hear us saying. My God says that I'm not to, I'm not to use violence. Oh yeah, we're not to use violence either. Oh, well, Jesus says to lay down the sword. Yeah, that's when the Quran as well. They all mimic everything I'm saying. They have no idea what they're saying, but they like what they hear. They love what they hear. One of the reasons why they love coming to America and they love living in the West is because this is a peaceful country and if they're going to live here, they have to live by our mores. Right. And our mores and our rules are all dictated by the Bible. And whether or not you like to say it or not, this is a Christian country because your laws and institutions are instituted by the biblical, the biblical uh, precept. But knowing that, then you, got, you can see that many of them are now borrowing the very things, same things we're saying. They assume that that's in Islam. A radical would never say that, would never admit it. He would be the first one to say, ha, 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 no, no, Mr. Smith. No, 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 Mr. Smith. There's nothing in the Quran that says we're to lay down the sword. In fact, it says just the opposite. Slay the unbeliever wherever ye find them. That's yeah. chapter 9, verse 5. Wait for him in every kind of ambush. Besiege them. In chapter 9, verse 29, make war on the people of the book. That's me. You're to, we're to make war upon you, Mr. Smith. Chapter 8, verse 39, 
slay the unbeliever until there is no more unbelief, until all have faith in Allah. That's red and black, white and black, black and white. I've got it finally on the third one. Black and white. You can, and when you read meet a Muslim that can quote those kind of verses, then with that kind of background, look at what Muhammad did to the Jews in Medina. Then you're going to get into a real discussion. Those are the ones I find are my favorite Muslims because they're just like me. Now, are they going to kill me? No, they're not. They're just like you and that they're serious about They're serious their, about their faith. Their faith. They're serious about their book and they are as honest and the most transparent transparent people I know. I have a hard time with nominal Muslims because they lie, 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 lie all the time. Hmm. Not much of it is they don't even know that they're lying. But even if they do know that they're lying, they will still lie because this is called taqiyya. This is given. This is permitted by Islam. Okay, when so, you're, I, so I've, when you're I've, in a, a I've heard about this. Country. I've heard about this, and this is one thing that Americans will say: you can't trust a Muslim because they just always lie, and it's part of their their religion. What what is what is now, meant by not that? Not every Muslim knows this, so be careful of this. I don't, okay. That's why I'm a little hesitant to introduce this in this talk. Yeah. A lot of Muslims do not know anything about taqiyya. Many okay. of your radicals do, and that's why you need to get from the you get from the private. I'm sorry, from the public to the private face. Publicly, Muslims will tell you whatever you want to hear. Right. Even, especially the most radical Muslims most will do that. Will do that. <laughs> but I'm saying even about their faith. Yeah, okay. Now, most Christians won't do that. They won't tell you. If they, I, don't, I hope most Christians don't lie about right. their faith or what God is and who Jesus is just for your sake. Yeah. If they do, then, then I would be, be very seriously wonder whether they are Christians. Right. But a Muslim, however, looks at the world, in, uh, a radical Muslim especially, an Orthodox Muslim, will see the world in two spheres. One is called the Dar al-Islam, that means the house of Islam. Whenever they're in a Muslim context, in their Muslim countries, in the mosque, or in their family, that is Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam. Once they leave Dar al-Islam, once they leave their home, once they leave the mosque, once they leave their country and come to America, they come into what they call Dar al-Harb. Dar al-Harb means house of war. They're in the context of war. So therefore they see when they're in war, they can do anything that you, who are in an enemy territory, and you are permitted to lie if you're in enemy territory. We'd, we allow us to do that as a, if you're a military. And House of War, that they would be putting that in a spiritual context? The reason why is Islam brings the mosque and state together. Okay. We separate the two. Yeah. So as Christians, and when Christ said, you know, who's, who are you to pay tax to look at the image on the back, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to God what belongs to God. Mm -hmm. In Matthew, he was separating the two. Now because of that, he was very clear, and, and we are very clear, that when we are, doesn't matter where, um, when we are dealing with state, we use, we have a totally different category than when we're dealing with God. But in the context of Islam, all is a religion. So how you walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep is your religion. So when you can see that, Eddie, when you look and understand then that this whole context of Dar al-Hab versus Dar al-Islam, when they're in Dar al-Hab, which America is, so if they're here in Huntington Beach, you go up to a Muslim and you say, listen, you read, is Islam, is ISIS really Islamic? And they say, oh, no, 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 that's nothing to do with Islam. They probably do believe it does because if they've been reading scripture, they'll see that everything ISIS does can be found in scripture. Right. Every act that I've seen ISIS do, I can give you, I can quote a verse to, to support it except the cage with the Jordanian pilot, which they fired. That's the only one I cannot find in scripture. However, Muslims have told me you can find that in the Hadith. Nonetheless. Give me, give me some examples of things ISIS have done. All right, done let's just give you some real quick we ones. We can find in the Quran. When they cut off the heads, when Jihadi John slit the heads uh -huh. of those four men in the orange jumpsuits, yes. what was he saying as he was slitting their throats? If you read it in Arabic, he's from India. I'm sorry, he's from England. He's from London. Okay. That's Jihadi Dad, Muhammad El Mwazi. He lived in Kilburn, just about 10, uh, actually uh, about six miles from where I lived. This yeah. is the guy that's in the desert. He's, they're in orange jumpsuit. Yes. And then he slits their throat, one right. every two weeks. Okay, yeah. And that was all over our papers. Yeah, yeah. Two of them were American, two of them were British. 
Um, I think two of them were reporters, and two of them were social workers. Okay. And that was on uh, the cover of every no, one of our papers. I remember that, yeah. We only showed them before he slit their throat, mm -hmm. right? You didn't see the videos. Please don't see the videos. I have to go look at the videos because my Muslim friends want me to see it. Right. But I'm listening to what he's saying. He is saying in Arabic, he is quoting from chapter 47, ayah 4. He actually starts with verse 1, 2, and 3, who a believer is and who an unbeliever is. Then he gets to chapter, verse 4 and says, cut off the heads of the unbelievers. So, and then he goes on to verse 5 and 6 and he says, for those who participate in jihad, if they should die, great shall be the reward, for they shall be in heaven. So this is, this is, this is in chapter 47. Verses in, Quran, in the Quran. Right there in the Quran. Cut off the heads of the unbeliever. If you want to see what they were doing in Aleppo, uh, when they were taking those Christians and they were crucifying them, yeah. and then they were cutting off their hands and feet from opposite end, that's in chapter 5, verse 33. Those who stand against Allah and as a prophet, crucify them and cut off their hands and feet on opposite ends. That comes right after chapter 5, verse 32, which says, O children of Israel, he who takes the blood of one is if he takes the blood of all. He who saves the blood of one is if he saves the blood of one. The one that Obama used to quote all the time. Yeah. That was only for the Israelites. That's, that's, children of Israel. that's, that's used as a verse to show why Peaceful. Islam is a religion of peace. But that's for the only Israelites. And Muslims are not Israelites. So, so what I'm hearing here is, is just but like... Let, let, let me finish. Okay. <laughs> you need to go to the next verse. Right. You need to read the next verse because that's for Muslims. He who stands against Allah and stands against Muhammad, cut, crucify them and cut off their hands and feet. Why don't, any, why don't people read the next verse? Because that's the one to, to you that has to do with you, me, and Muslims. So when I do apologetics, when I'm talking to atheists, one of the things they'll do is they'll throw out a verse and they'll try to prove their point, and their point makes no sense when you look at the context of the you whole Bible. You always need to look at the context. And so what you're saying is we need to do the same thing the in the Quran. When someone says, here's a verse that proves that Islam is a religion of peace from the Quran, we need to look at the context and see what that's all about. And that's about. just an easy one because you just need the first part of the verse. The first part of the verse, O children of Israel, he right. who takes the blood of what? That has nothing to do with Muslims. Not even you and me. That has to do with Jews. Yeah. And so you need to, but I'm just, I'm just using this as a Gendaya. Let me give you some other examples. Right. What about cutting off the hands of the thieves? That's in chapter 5, verse 38. What about beating and um, beating up the uh, homosexuals and beating up the adulterers? That's in chapter 24, verse 2. Uh, what about beating the wives? That's in chapter 4, verse 34. What about the Yazidi slaves, the women who were as slaves? That's in chapter 4, verse 24. And you just go on and on and on, verse after verse after verse, that supports everything that we're talking about here. And so that's why you need to be careful when you look and ask this question, is Islam peaceful or violent? Muslims are peaceful if they live in America and if they don't know their Quran. But the more they know the Quran, the more you're going to see them following what the Quran says. That's why Sheikh Umar Bakr, when he introduced me, he was very clear and he was very correct by saying when Islam comes, when the Quran then becomes the litmus, the authority for Britain, when it comes to Britain, he, this will be the first man I kill because this is the man that's the most dangerous because he knows my Quran better than most anybody else he's come across. So he was actually being true to his he was religion. Actually, and he smiled when he said it and he gave me a big hug at the end. <laughs> Because he knew that I understood that and right. I didn't get threatened by it. Right. Because I know Islam is not coming to Britain. Yeah. And as long as I'm alive, and as long as people who are listening are alive, we're going to make sure it doesn't come to America as well. What I, I want Muslims to come, but I don't want Islam to come and take over. Mm. I don't mind having Muslims here. But you see, I'm making a distinction here. It's not Muslims that I'm confronting. It's not Muslims that I have a problem with. It's not Muslims that I fear. It's Islam that I'm confronting. So this word that I'm an Islamophobe is absolutely correct. And I wear that as a badge. Huh. I am absolutely fearful of Islam, but not Muslims. <laughs> That's great. And I wear it and I say, of course I'm an Islamophobe. And everybody should be an Islamophobe. 
if it's understood, the word is understood right. properly. Because obviously, if you didn't love Muslims, you wouldn't be committing your life. Why to would I be doing waging? Spend forty years. Of course, I love them, and they're the best people I find because they're so passionate about their faith, yeah. and I'm jealous of that passion. What what makes it uh, such a what makes me angry is what Islam is doing to them. Hmm. I'm going to jump back to uh, what you were just talking about. You you know, you used all these Quranic verses to show that. The, the killing of people and, and what we would call terrorist acts. You know, it's, it's amazing. These things are so gruesome, cutting off hands and things that you think this is actually supported by a religious book. But so you've been, you've been using these Quranic citations to show this is where it's coming from. Now, I'm, I'm going to throw this at you um, because I'm sure this comes up when you're out there open air preaching. Well, sure, the Quran talks about um, using violence, but didn't God kill all these people in the Old Testament? Didn't didn't God wipe out nations and He killed all these people? You know, it, isn't isn't it the same thing you're talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. Okay. And in the Old Testament, you go back to Joshua six, verse twenty, First mm -hmm. Samuel fifteen, verse two and three, mm -hmm. and there you see Him saying to Joshua, "Go into Jericho, kill all men, women, and children, all living things." That's genocide. Okay. And Saint First uh, Second Samuel, uh, First Second Samuel. Uh, 15, exact same thing over again. But you're saying all people, all entire nations? Do you, have you ever read, looked at the context? I'm going to throw the context at you. Mm -hmm. Look at the context of what he's talking about. Is it everybody? No, it's not everybody. In fact, to understand the context, you need to go to, you, you need to go to, to uh, I think it's Exodus chapter 17. Mm -hmm. And you would also go to Ezekiel chapter 16. Those two chapters. Take a look and see what's happening there. What God is saying here is, He says, these people, these people that I'm going to have you confront are the ones that waylaid the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt and look and see what he, they did to the, these uh, Israelites. Mm -hmm. They attacked them, they seduced them, and then they pulled them away from, our, from, from me, God, to other gods. Right. Therefore, He says in Exodus 17, I am going to destroy your descendants. Completely destroy them. God says that. So He promises that from the very beginning. Right. But who are He? Only He's talking about six nations. He's only talking about six people, and I can't remember all the names of them. I know some of them are the Hittites, the Ebusites, um, Amorites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and there's two more that I can't think of at the top of my head because under my Bible in front right. of me. But it's these six only that He's going to do that to. And then what does He say? Then you need to go to Deuteronomy 20, because in Deuteronomy 20, God then gives a stipulation of how is it you're to attack these people. And He gives two different criteria, two different categories, those who are far from you and those who are near. He starts with the far ones in, the I think, the first 12 verses. And He says, those who are far, you're to, first of all, you're, you're to go and tell them uh, that are they going to come, are they going to, are they going to be friends with you or are they going to be friendly? If not, then you attack them. And you attack them, but you only kill the men. You do not kill the children or the women, only the men. Then he talks about those who are near to you. Now, these are the Jebusites, these are the Amorites, these are the Hittites, these are the ones who have been attacked, who are, are talked about in Exodus 17 and Ezekiel 16. Those ones who seduced you and who attacked you while you were defenseless coming out of Egypt. Those ones are the ones near you. You were to completely annihilate them, destroy them. That's why you have Joshua 6. So there's the context which is telling me that this is only for those people at that time, for that place, for that reason, and it's only therefore we leave it in 1400 BC. Now let me just go one step further. Do you follow that today? No. Why not? not? Because that's I'm, scripture. Yes. Well, because I'm not an I'm not an Israelite living in that circumstance. Therefore, that, you leave that in 1400 BC, right? Right. So who do you follow? 
follow Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. What, what, what about the Mosaic Law, which is very clear that this is part of that Mosaic Law. There's a lot of things in the Mosaic Law that you should be following, and that's the whole of Scripture. And you have Muslims will say, isn't that, didn't God tell you to do that in 1400 BC? Shouldn't that still be a universal application? Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you then? Well, because I follow Christ who brought the New Covenant, and that's... Where is that? Where's the New Covenant? Where does it talk about that? It is the... All throughout the Old Testament. It's no, no, where is that that you have this new covenant that you're talking about somehow saying that that no, old covenant is no longer good? Are you telling me it's two different covenants? Are you saying they're contradictory? Are you saying God changed his mind? I'm saying that that Jesus is the fulfillment of where is that? The, old, the Old Testament. That's Matthew 5.17. Okay. Matthew 5.17. This is why you're here is it, this is what you need to do because Muslims will hammer you this if you start saying that. And they'll say, ah, so you have two different gods. God for the Old Testament who tells you to do all these terrible things and a God for the New Testament that says to put away the sword. Huh. Oh, God contradicts himself? Two different gods? Right. We've always known you've had three. So you can fall into that trap. Yeah. So what you need to do is you need to go right to Matthew 5. Uh, Matthew 5. Read to them verse 17. I have not come to destroy that law. That's the Mosaic law that you're talking about. That's all the, the violence that we're talking about there in 1400 BC. I have come to fulfill it. Now you did say fulfill, but you weren't sure where, was, where, you, where right. you're gonna get this from. That's in verse 17. But God doesn't stop there. I mean, Jesus doesn't stop there. He then gives us six applications of what he means. You haven't heard it say in the Old Testament law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I now say to turn the other cheek. That's the old law, an eye for an eye. That's the Mosaic law. That's what God was telling them to do with the Amorites and the Hittites and the Pharisees and all these other Perizzites. These are all these six nations that we are now given and shown how to do that in Deuteronomy 20. But now he's saying, you're to turn the other cheek. Here's a whole new law. Here's a whole new covenant. Here's a whole new testament. But I love to go to verse 43 because in verse 43 it says, for you have heard it say in Mosaic law to love your friends and hate your enemies. Verse 44, but now I say to love your enemies. That's the new law. So that's why you and me, we don't go back to Moses anymore. We don't go back to David. We don't even go to Billy Graham. We go to Jesus Christ. Right. And that's why it's so important that we come back and see what Jesus said. Jesus does not destroy that law. Therefore, we need to see what God's doing in history. We need to know why he had to destroy those people. But remember, when those people were destroyed, that was only for those people at that time and in that place. We leave it there. That is not a universal application. However, when you go to the Quran, when you look at chapter 9, verse 5, slay the unbelievers wherever ye find them, that is universal. So that's not an issue of judgment, which is the Old Testament. God is specifically judging a specific group of people for a specific thing and exactly. you're saying as far as where they're coming from there's just the believers which would be the Muslims and then there's the un unbelievers two groups and it's saying slay the unbelievers and unbelievers universal there's no thing the unbelievers who are in America or Trump's supporters or uh, people who follow British military they're not even there's nothing about that there's not even saying only those in Medina or those in Mecca it's saying all unbelievers and that's why in all these violent verses and there's 149 of them in the in the Quran if you take a look at them they are all universal application not so the Bible that's why we need to make sure that when we look at the Old Testament, we have what we call progressive revelation. And the revelation progresses from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that's why we do have a fulfilled law. And that law does not contradict, it does not abrogate, it does not eradicate, it fulfills what the Old Testament, what God was getting at. And you can see that God was doing that because He was punishing, He said He was going to, in Exodus 17 and Ezekiel 16, for the sins that these people had perpetrated on the uh, on the Israelites. Now we come to the New Testament and the question I've always asked, and this is something I always go to Muslims, and I say, listen, you say that you're religion of peace. Show me one verse in the Quran that says you're to have peace with me. Give me one verse. 
And in 38 years, I have yet to find a Muslim that could come up with one verse that says they're to have peace with me, a Christian. It's not there. Did you know that? Uh, all I know is what I hear from the news reporters who okay, come so on what's the verse? The... What's the verse they come up with? Uh, boy. There's only three verses they come up with. Okay. What are they? Actually, there's four. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't memorize the newscasts, unfortunately. It's chapter 106, <laughs> verse 6. Okay. To you, your religion. To me, my religion. That's the best you're going to get. Okay. To you, your religion. To me, my religion. 106 means it's one of the earliest surahs in the Quran. Okay. It's one of the earliest revealed to Muhammad. Now, remember, that was revealed while he was in Mecca between 610 and 622. He was a minority. I would suggest that he would probably, he would want a revelation like that. To your religion, to me, my religion, I'm not gonna, he had no authority, he had no power. Once he moved to Medina in 622, then you get the Medinan surahs, which are the first half of the Quran. And then suddenly you get an enormous amount of violence, violence, violence. All the violence is in the Medinan. Now, how do we understand that? In the Quran, they already give you, how do you understand this contradiction between the two? Now, that's, it is a contradiction. 106 yeah. versus 9.5 or versus 8.39 or versus 47.4, the ones that we've been talking about. There is a huge contradiction between those 106 and everything else. It, the Quran already realizes that, that there are contradictions, so it creates a law of abrogation. It's in chapter 2, verse 106, and it's at chapter 16, verse 101. And what it says is, that which we give, mansuk, previously, is weak. Mansuk means weak. We give something better, nasik which is strong. So that which we give earlier, we give something that which comes after it that's much stronger. So any two verses that you have together, you always go with the later verse. So it could be seen in a sense like a progressive revelation? Ah, it's not progressive at all. It's degressive. It's oh, okay. regressive. <laughs> right. Because progressive it goes from meaning peace. meaning that, that what comes later trumps what com came before. I know, and I'm, I'm doing play on words. It's funny. It's actually regressive because it goes from peace to violence. Right. Because then when he moves to Medina, then now he has control. Now he is the caliph. Now the caliphate has been formed. And that's why he starts his pogrom against the Jews in 624, 625, and 627, throwing out all the three Jewish families. And the last Jewish family, the Banu Qurayza family, he takes all 800 men and slits their throat in one afternoon, takes the women as concubines, and the children as slaves. There are no Jewish tribes left in Medina, though they had been there for hundreds of years, and he'd only been there for five. Now that is, all, all my radical Muslim friends know what I've just said. You've never heard this before. No. And, and for those who are listening, have never heard this before, because we're not taught this. You're not permitted to hear this in America, because that's the narrative that the government doesn't want to hear. I'm getting back to your earlier question. Yeah. That's the, the narrative that your schools don't want to hear. That's the narrative that Muslims don't want you to hear. They don't want to hear what Muhammad did with the Jews in Medina. If he was only, if he was from Mecca and he had only been in, in Medina for five years, the Jews had lived there for centuries and he eradicated through them out within five years. I have a name for that. We call that genocide. There's the example of genocide right there when Muhammad was in Medina between 622 and 627 AD. After 627 AD, he started his raids. And he was involved in 29 battle campaigns, raids. He planned another 33 on top of that. Take a look at his life in Medina. It was violent after violent after violence. Now that is the example for all Muslims everywhere at every place for all time. If that's their model, that's not a model I want to follow. So, so if you're going to say, is Islam violent? I would suggest the Quran is violent and Muhammad is violent, but Muslims most of them that you meet here are not violent. We're kind of coming all the way back to what we started at, at the very yeah. beginning of this talk. So I think part of the issue, part of the reason Americans know so little about this is because it just seems like such a 
such a fantasy. So, and what I mean by that is... Horrid fantasy. Here we are. We're hanging out at Huntington Beach. It's beautiful. There's surfers over there. You, you know, there, there's... Oh, you mean we live in a fantasy. Americans are living in a fantasy. So here we are. You know, there's all these people having fun. And when I think about a place where people are actually getting their hands cut off or all these horrible things, all these heads cut off, all these things are, are happening... It just seems like, well, I don't, I don't really need to worry about that. I'm good here. Um, well, Eddie, let me ask you. When you saw these yeah. pictures of these people with their being, having their throat slit in these orange jumpsuits, yeah. did it not, did it, was it, did it not revolt you? I was horrible. It absolutely. was absolutely. And you've said, hold on, but this can't be Islam, because this is not like my greengrocer who lives right down the street. This is like like Ahmed who is in my workplace. This right. is not the man that I know. Can you see? Almost everybody was revolted by that. Hmm. All my radical Muslim friends were not. Just in the news yesterday, these two ISIS fighters that Donald Trump has now taken, because you know Turkey is now invading the Kurds, right. the Kurds, yep. and the Kurds have 12,000 ISIS fighters in prison, mm -hmm. and they're all going to be let loose. The Kurds are going to are threatened to let them loose if Trump is leaving. Right. And so Trump quickly went in and took two of the most notorious ones from Britain. They're from London. The ISIS guys. These two ISIS guys. They're uh -huh. pictured. You can look on the on the on BBC. It's also on. I think Fox News has it. Uh, and I think CNN has a okay. reporting on it. Take a look at these two guys. These are guys who are grown up in London from where I grew up, where I was living. I don't think I know them, but they were just interviewed by BBC. And BBC says, well, are you guys, you know, you guys are, are were there with Jihadi John. You were there with Mwazi. Um, you were actually part of his group. You were part of, you were actually one of the ones that prepped the guys before they got their throat slit. Mm -hmm. Do you regret that? Of course we don't regret it. Of course we don't regret it. This is what God tells us to do. Look at the responses. We're in 2019. This happened in 2014. Five years later, they don't regret it. Right. And it's not because whether they like it or different. They have grown up in London, for heaven's sakes. They're British. That's why they were called the Beatles. They're, that's their nickname, given by the other ISIS, because they have, okay. the, they have the accent to the Beatles. They're not, though they are, they, they, by looking at them, it looks they're like they're from, um, I think one is from Eritrea and the other one's from Pakistan. Mm -hmm. They don't look English. They are as English as any Englishman I've ever come across. What changed them? What changed them? There was one book changed them. Let me give you another example. You probably heard back in 2013 about uh, two men, Michael Aribelajo, who came to Wolof, Wolof um, not Wolof, um, Anyways, they have the big, uh, out just in London, in the southeast part of London, I can't remember the, the barracks. It's a barracks, um, arsenal barracks. It's like an arsenal barracks where there was drummer Rigby, who was his coming home. He was coming back to the barracks. He was a music man. He was a man who played instruments in the band. Yeah. But he was military, so he had his military costume on. They were sitting in a car. They saw him. They ram him. They jump out. They take knives. He's still alive, and they cut off his head, and they drag him into the street. This is in London. Mm -hmm. happened in 2013. Then they sit around and they don't flee and they don't kill anybody else with hands all full of blood. They go to the crowds there waiting for the police to come and they talk to them calmly like I'm talking to you right now. And they apologize for what they had to see. However, they said, we did this purposely and then they give a note to one of the pastors. He says, please give this to my son. That was Michael Aribelajo. And when the police came, they rushed at the police yelling, Allahu Akbar, and the police shot him in the legs. See, in Britain, we don't kill our people. We just wound them. Right. Your police here could learn from them. Yeah. They're still alive today. They're now in prison, at their uh, at their um, uh, at so they, the they wanted trial. The, they wanted the, the officers to shoot them. No, kick, they want to be a shahids. They were hoping to be a shahids. What's a shahid? That means a, a suicide bomber. Okay. A suicide. Uh, they wanted to die in the cause of Allah. They were obeying chapter forty-seven, verse five and six. Those who die in the cause of Allah, great shall be the reward. They shall be in heaven. That means they have a 
immediate ticket to heaven. There is no assurance of salvation in Islam except if you die in the cause of Allah. Oh. That is why it's so attractive for many suicide bombers, young ones especially, who don't, who have had a terrible life and don't see much future in right. front of them. Now let's go back to Michael Abelajo. Mm -hmm. Ten years prior to that, and growing up in Romford in eastern London, he was a Pentecostal Christian from Nigeria. Okay. But he grew up in London. Nigerian, grew up in London, as his parents are still Pentecostal Christians, fine, upstanding Christians yeah. who were concerned about their son because he was going with the wrong crowd, other Nigerians. This is while he was a, a Christian. Young guy Pentecostal. living in Romford. So they, had, they moved out of London to get him away from the wrong crowd. They moved outside of London, but then he came back uh, in 2003 to go to Greenwich University, right there in London. Mm -hmm. And he con made contact with Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad, my friend, who came to the campus okay. and had a preach there and converted Michael Adibalajo to Islam in 2003. Michael Adibalajo, between 2003 and 2013, changed from a nice Bible-believing, God-believing Pentecostal Christian and became a radical Muslim. So that in 2013, he killed cut off the heads in front of everybody, had no remorse whatsoever, calmed, as, talked as calmly as you and I were talking, and uh, after he knifed, uh, cut off the heads to the crowd that were around him. Now at his trial, they, showed, they brought out this note that he'd given to the crowd, and on it was a, basically, basically was a, a note to his son saying why he did what he did. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it was reference after reference after reference from the Quran. Quranic verse after Quranic verse. He was justifying what he did. Exactly. Everything he did was because the Quran told him. Wow. Now he's in prison right now. It just came out a few months ago that they had to move him to another isolated prison because he's bringing so many Christians to, to Islam, even in prison. Wow. He has not given up. This is now 2019. That happened in 2013. That was six years ago. And he's still converting Christians to Islam because of his radical beliefs that he did not choose, it's because the Quran is telling him to do that. Right. And he's becoming such a, a problem for the prison ministry that they've had to put him into isolation. Can you see what we're talking about here? Yeah. They, he is a radical Muslim because of the Quran and because of what he knows about Muhammad. I am a radical Christian because of my Bible and what I know about Jesus Christ. So if we're gonna control this and defeat this, we're gonna have to go back to that book and we're gonna have to confront that book. Mm -hmm. Stop confronting Muslims. They are not the problem. It's the book that's a problem. And it's the man that's the problem behind it. So that's what we need to do as Christians because I don't see anybody doing that. And the reason why is we don't even know what the book's saying. We don't read it. It's not part of our curriculum. It's not in any, it, it's, I don't know of any, except out of Fuller where I did my master's, my first master, my second master's at Fuller. We were never told to read the Quran. But how can you confront the fastest growing religion the largest, soon to be the largest religion in the world, a religion that's no longer over there, it's very much here. How are you going to confront it unless you know what you're up against, unless you know what you're confronting? Well, Jay, you have given us a lot of information. Um, I'm actually going to stop the recorder right now and, and pick up a little more. We're going to break this podcast up into two parts. Man, time flies when you're learning a worldview. So that was Jay Smith part one. Join us next time for Jay Smith, you guessed it, Part two. Thanks for listening to Romans Road. If you want to learn how to evangelize, check out my book, Search and Rescue, available at eddyroman.com. On my website, you'll also find videos and other things to encourage you to preach the gospel to your friends and family. That's eddyroman.com. See you next time.
Looking for strategies that will help you engage in meaningful conversations with members of the Mormon Church? Well, if so, take a look at Sharing the Good News with Mormons, a new book produced by Harvest House Publishers and edited by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and Sean McDowell. Sharing the Good News with Mormons includes 24 helpful essays from two dozen Christian apologists, scholars, and pastors. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or order directly from mrm.org.